This session is from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. For more information, please visit shepherds360.org. All right, welcome. I'm glad you've come. This is the session on peacemaking, just war, and pacifism. Uh, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come to this conference, to have our minds expanded, to have our, uh, our hearts touched and uh, our spirits emboldened. Uh, may you fill us, fill us with your spirit that we might go forth from this conference to a world in great need, uh, to congregations that uh, also are in need of education, in need of edification and fortification as well uh, for the many challenges that lie ahead. Uh, Lord, give to us wisdom as we tackle this question of uh, just war, pacifism, and what your word has to say about these things. Uh, may you lead us and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, if you're interested in uh, our MA philosophy religion program. We have an emphasis in public engagement. Um, public philosophy is uh, kind of our strong suit. Uh, no other Christian university doing this at a master's level that is engaging. We have a class in public philosophy at Palm Beach Atlantic University, West Palm Beach, Florida. And we ha also have a hybrid program too. So people will take a class online, like I'm teaching a class tonight at six, um, you know, for two and a half hours to students in Texas and Utah and elsewhere. Um, and then they also have an intensive twice a week coming into PBA campus and then have, you know, being with the rest of the community uh, on the ground community at PBA. Um, and so basically getting training in the area of, you know, I mean, just kind of your straightforward preparation for PhD programs in philosophy, but also people going to church and parachurch ministries, like working with international students or campus ministries like InterVarsity, uh, but also helping them to, you know, if they have an expertise in some other area like law or whatever, uh, trying to equip them in the area of public philosophy. How do we engage our culture? So we've got classes in philosophy, technology, and ethics, public philosophy, philosophy of literature. Uh, Rob Garcia from Baylor University is going to be teaching a class in January on philosophy using a lot of C.S. Lewis. Um, and, uh, and so he's just uh, you know, a wonderful, wonderful scholar. So anyway, if you know people who might be interested in this sort of a thing, uh, we'd be happy to hear from you. So just uh, let me know. You just always email us through our, our website as well. But, uh, but we have some exciting things going on. Uh, so I have about uh, 30 students in the program and would love to have, have you all join us. Um, all right. So here's our topic. Uh, as we talk about uh, the matter of war... Uh, here's a statement by John Stuart Mill. Uh, war is an ugly thing, uh, but not the ugliest of things, the decayed and degraded state of moral and patriotic feeling which thinks nothing is worth a war is worse. So we uh, will be taking a just war position in this. Um, and uh, we obviously have a lot to think about in, in light of the kind of world in which we live. Um, Various rogue nations, Iran, um, you know, we see the terrorist attack on Israel by Hamas. We saw the ISIS state develop at a very frightening pace, um, uh, it covered territory the size of the state of Indiana um, until it was finally uh, shut down. 
Um, then we, of course, have the border issues of, uh, you know, and again, throughout the world, too, sex trafficking, slavery, um, and governments that uh, persecute Christians or human rights violations. And um, when is there a place for the use of force? Uh, my dad came from Ukraine, and uh, we have relatives there, and so we are trying to, a number of them were refugees in Austria and living near my sister for a time. And she was helping them, and we were raising funds for the uh, for our relatives, um, and also helping with relief. Uh, my uh, in that uh, picture there, the man handing the woman a bag through the window, as uh, my uh, my cousin Andre, uh, who is uh, you know did a lot of relief work, was on the front lines. Actually, his unit on the front lines of the Ukraine-Russian war uh, was featured on the, uh, on the front page of the New York Times, actually. They made, uh, you know, they had a photo of, uh, of uh, some of them involved in that, uh, in that uh, rescue effort. Um, uh, we also have the, uh, we have the Hamas uh, attack on Israel. And of course, it's uh, another frightening scenario where quite a conflagration uh, that is uh, taking place there. And, you know, how do we respond to this? What do Christians do? Uh, when I was in Ukraine this past summer, my wife and I were there, got to meet my cousin Andre for the first time and his, some of his, a couple of his daughters. We were talking with people who were saying, my pastor says that we should be pacifists. Um, we should just kind of pull back and not really engage. And, and they wanted me to come to speak on the topic of just war and pacifism there. Uh, is there? a biblical principled understanding of war that allows for the use of coercive force of course that is just you can have unjust coercive force but also just coercive force and so uh, what we want to do is just briefly look at christian pacifism uh, give a defense of just war uh, just touch on terrorism briefly uh, what makes terrorism terrorism and then look at uh, the matter of scripture peacemaking and war. So we've got a tall order here. We're going to move with unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, and majestic instancy uh, to try to get all of this um, wound up in, uh, in, in proper uh, order. So, so here we go. Uh, but, you know, and again, I've, I've, done a, I've done a book. Um, it's a four views book that I edited with InterVarsity. Um, it's, called, um, it's called War, Peace, and violence for Christian views. So I've written the introduction, the conclusion, and uh, you know. But then there are various positions that are that are spelled out in this book, uh, you know, kind of on the spectrum uh, where where Christians uh, take a stand. So, uh, in in the Christian pacifism, uh, this uh, view takes many forms, but the basic position uh, can be articulated in these four uh, with these four tenets. Um, that taking uh, the taking of life in war or wherever, self-defense, even somebody intrudes in your home, uh, the taking of life is incompatible with the Christian life. So uh, point number one. Uh, also, the, the pacifist is quick to add that just because you're a pacifist doesn't mean that you disengage. You are going to be, you know, you, you work for the good of the world. It's not going to be through the use of force, uh, but it's going to be through, uh, you know, making peace, building bridges, reconciliation, uh, praying for enemies, uh, doing good in the world. So we want to properly represent the, the pacifists. And by the way, these four points 
that I'm giving are taken from my book, um, from the just from the pacifist's own position. Uh, Miles Wernz, who actually used to teach where I teach at Palm Beach Atlantic University, he uh, is articulating a pacifistic uh, uh, view here. So, thirdly, uh, the commitment to pacifism isn't solely about fulfilling a command, but entering into a life of discipleship and virtue. So, can you really be a virtuous person? Can you be a virtuous Christian and engage in war? Can there be such a thing as an appropriate undertaking of war, you know, the use of coercive force uh, as a believer? Doesn't this do damage to you? Doesn't it uh, maybe harden you, you know, morally uh, and so forth? So these are some of the questions that come up. Um, and the fourth point is that the Christian pacifist uh, refuses to make an ultimate divide between the private and the public. And so the accusation is that if you are holding to a just war view as a Christian, saying that Christians can fight in a just war, you are creating a kind of dichotomy for the disciple that you've got got your private and public and the ethic that applies to the private or the personal, you know, um, you know is going to be in, at odds with what you do in, in, in an official uh, capacity. So these are some of the kind of that's the nugget, uh, you know, this kind of the nugget uh, four points uh, related to what the pacifist is affirming. Now, let me just offer a, a brief response, and I'll, I'll, I'll pause here and there for questions, but let me just unpack this and will uh, and offer my own uh, response here. Uh, first, pacifism, I think, offers something that is helpful, that re- it reminds us that we should not be quick to use force, but to seek, say, diplomatic solutions, uh, to work together, uh, you know, even after war, uh, to bring healing to a nation and so forth. Those are areas where the just war theorist, the just war Christian, and the pa- Christian pacifist can, can say, yeah, we agree on this. We ought to do these things. But the pacifist gives us a helpful reminder here. Uh, Unfortunately, the pacifist doesn't distinguish between shedding blood and shedding innocent blood. Uh, There is a significant difference here, and uh, and that that this is uh, a very important point. When the scriptures are saying in the Old Testament, don't commit murder, there is obviously the permission for the death penalty, say, for someone who has committed murder. And Genesis 9 talks about taking one's life who has shed you know, man's blood, you know, that by man, that person's blood should be shed because he's taken the life of an image bearer, a divine image bearer. Mm-hmm. Um, also, there are, what about certain Old Testament passages? I mean, I, you may be, uh, I've, I've written three books, kind of a trilogy, uh, you know, co-authoring one of them, but uh, one is called Is God a Moral Monster? Another one is Did God Really Command Genocide? And then the third that came out last year is called Is God a Vindictive Bully? And uh, the answer to all of those is no. So there's a spoiler alert there. Um, but if you're interested in finding out a bit more about warfare and servitude and kosher laws and the imprecatory psalms and the Elisha and the bears and, and so forth, uh, you know, I cover a ton of these issues, and I'm trying to help people who are grappling with Old Testament warfare, and, and uh, in particular, and I argue, for example, that the texts are utilizing hyperbolic language, which is common in the ancient Near East, when it says, quote, utterly destroy. I mean, that tr- issue is even a matter of 
how do we translate that? Because sometimes it just means exile. Like Judah is going to be going, you know, Jeremiah 25 says, you know, God is going to say, God says, I'm going to, quote, utterly destroy you, but it's merely a matter of exile, going into exile. Um, it's not as though a nation is utterly obliterated. Sometimes it just means victory, a decisive victory. Um, so, so again, there's that question. And so I go into a lot of, uh, a lot of details on this that I trust you'll find, uh, find that helpful. So anyway, those are for what that's worth. But again, I, th I think there are certain texts in the Old Testament where God does command warfare. And the New Testament actually doesn't stand in contradiction to it. You know, people like Greg Boyd, a theologian, would say, oh, God couldn't have commanded that. That was just the textual God of the Old Testament, the literary uh, God of the ancient Near Eastern author, the narrator, or the prophet like Moses. So, God, you know, God didn't really command that. That was just Moses mishearing what God said. So when it says in the Old Testament, thus says the Lord, Greg Boyd says, not necessarily. It could be just Moses saying that. So that's, those are some of the things that I'm pushing back against, especially in my book, Is God a Vindictive Bully? Anyway, those are some things that, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I'm asked to speak on that topic all the time. So it's a very, um, you know, a lot of people are pushing back on that. I can't believe it a God who would command genocide and so forth. So I say, hold on a minute. Um, let's, uh, let's talk about this. That's not what it, at all what is going on here. Anyway, uh, so, so what about some of those Old Testament passages where there is indeed a command to, uh, to drive out the Canaanites? Uh, also, we could say that peacemaking is not uh, you know, opposed to uh, the use of coercive force. Uh, they can work in tandem. Uh, you can do both. Uh, you, know, you can work toward peace uh, even though you may need to defend yourself uh, in the, you know, in the short run. Uh, principles of just war don't include, don't exclude loving our neighbors as ourselves, including protecting the innocent, keeping order so the societies can flourish. Also, we can show love to our enemies in using just force to stop them from damaging their souls further in their effort to unjustly harm others. So it is showing love to our neighbor. Uh, killing should be a last resort. Harming or capturing an enemy, say, in a, in, in, a, in a theater of war, is preferable to killing that person. Furthermore, while all violence is force, not all force is violence. Uh, that the, the notion of force has to do with being directed at injustice. A just force um, you know, has to be proportionate and so forth. So the, here the issue is not war versus peace, um, because peace can sometimes be unjust. Remember Neville Chamberlain talking about having peace in our time, even though it was basically a capitulation to Hitler and, uh, and, and just listening to, just basically being appeasement uh, you know, with Hitler in the Munich Accord between Neville Chamberlain of Britain and, and Hitler. And uh, what Winston Churchill said, you know, appeasement is feeding the crocodile and hoping that he'll eat you last. It eventually comes to you. you know, appeasement is not the solution. So you can have a false peace, but the, you're not dealing with the root issue. So, uh, so again, the issue is more justified coercive force versus unjustified coercive force. But again, it's going to be directed toward the establishment of peace. So we should presume the centrality of justice, not simply to talk about peace. Peace can actually mean abdicating our responsibilities toward others. Uh, here's an example uh, that you may have... Uh, 
may remember from your uh, you know, history, American history, that uh, Pennsylvania had this holy experiment for uh, about 70 years trying to live in a pacifistic state of Pennsylvania. Uh, William Penn, of course, a Quaker, a pacifist, um, and uh, you, know, you have people who don't want to use force, but they still need to maintain order in society. What ends up happening? Well, they're hiring Indians, Native Americans, uh, you know, among others to keep the peace and protect society. So they're letting others do the dirty work that they as Christians, uh, Christian Quakers don't have to do. Uh, it, uh, it didn't, uh, you know, didn't work uh, all that well. They, they ended up realizing that uh, they have to use force in order to, uh, you know, in order to preserve the peace. Uh, and even today, uh, Christian pacifists will benefit from armed guards who protect their life savings uh, or police who keep criminals off the streets. Uh, you know, governments uh, will use force to, uh, to enforce the laws, whether it comes to you, know, if you're not paying your child support, you're not paying income tax, uh, you know, all these sorts of things are, uh, are requiring force of some sort. And uh, yeah, now some people say, well, okay, I believe that you can use force, but not to take someone's life. So you can maybe restrain someone who breaks in your house, but not take that person's life. But again, very often it's the case that we rely on others to preserve the peace that we ourselves don't, you know, don't want to do. We say that's, that's not good. You can't do that. You, a Christian can't do that. But yet we're counting on others to preserve the peace for us. Um, again, uh, we see more and more police in, in the United States in churches. Uh, how many of you have police in your, some of your churches? Any? Okay, so some of you. I mean, we have one who's there every week um, and um, protect innocent civilians. We're, we're thankful that we, we thank the police that come to our, our, our church services and, and uh, you know, bring, bring a, 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 you know, a protection uh, to us. So let me just, um, with that in mind, uh, let me just pause to see if there are questions here. Any uh, questions or comments on what I've just said? I'm just kind of running through a lot of stuff here, but uh, hopefully some of this is taking hold. Yeah. I may, I may be jumping ahead, so I apologize in advance. But uh, while, while I appreciate uh, the heart behind the pacifist intent, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it could be misguided, but some of it is genuinely coming from a desire to honor God. Oh, absolutely. What do you, what do you, or how do you respond to a John Piper, uh, who, who, who struggles with the thought of, uh, you know, somebody breaking into his home and harming his family and, and protecting his family. Um, I don't think he's ever advocated for pacifism, but I know there was a time when he he, he struggled with with that concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and other people will bring that up too. Yeah. Uh, that uh, this is an issue. What happens when your loved ones are in harm's way? What if you're, somebody is threatening to rape your wife or right. to kidnap your children? Yeah. Um, well, Proverbs 24, that you are to rescue those who are being led away to death. Hold them back. That sounds like it requires a little bit of force, doesn't it? Um, you know, and again, this is just not something specific to Old Testament ethics. This is just kind of basic general wisdom. You protect those who can't protect themselves. You intervene. Uh, you subdue. 
and uh, I think that that is, uh, is, is, is correct, that you have a charge, you have a duty to, uh, to protect those who are entrusted to your care. So, so if you have the capacity to do so, you, you do it. So anyway, but I would, uh, you know, there are other things that we could, we could say there, but we'll come back to some of, the, some of those principles. Yeah, hi. I just remember reading where Christ says, if you don't have a sword, come cloak and buy one, where there's a certain amount of protection obviously, that when you send it out to his disciples. Yeah, and he said, of course, you know, things are going to heat up, and he says, you know, get yourself swords. Well, some people say, oh, he was just reminding them that things are going to get tough, that they're going to be persecuted. Well, you know, what I do is I kind of cut to the chase. I'll say, the disciples say, Lord, here are two swords. If Jesus has been teaching pacifism for three years, what are those disciples doing with swords in their midst? Jesus should have been, you know, just Get them out of here. That's you know. So we'll come we'll come back to that. But uh, that is a, a relevant point. What are they doing carrying swords? Well, all you have to do you don't have to use it. Just just brandish it, and it keeps would be thugs and criminals uh, at bay. Yeah. Uh, so let's just say a hypothetical situation. Somebody breaks in your home, but their intent is to harm you because you're a believer, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. is there you have that side where just war kind of goes into maybe more of a pacifism mm -hmm. there. Like I feel yeah. as if, am I going to harm someone who's persecuting me because of my, my belief? Sure. Christian? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I do touch on this in the biblical ethics book that you have received. Uh, so we talk about that differentiating between religious persecution uh, because you are a Christian uh, and protecting say those who are entrusted to you. And so, I mean, if it's if it's a matter of my own life being taken, that's fine. But say in it, say you're in a situation where where Hamas is indiscriminate in, you know, you know, you know doesn't distinguish between uh, you know, between the innocent and the guilty, between the combatant and the non-combatant. You know, I think in a case like terrorism, it's you know, it, it's basically anything that is non-Muslim. So it's not really even, you know, it, it, you know it, 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 there's an appropriate just war response to simply trying to protect one's own family and so forth. And, uh, you know, but, but again, if there's a matter of saying, I, you know, I want you to renounce your faith, uh, you know, and so forth, that, that's a different story. But I think simply in, as a matter of self-protection, uh, that would be a, a different issue. So, and, and, yeah, so so martyrdom is definitely a uh, you know something that you know, we ought not to shrink from. We ought to be bold in uh, in standing up for Jesus. And when the time should, if the time should come where we say you know, deny Jesus, we're told deny Jesus, or uh, or else we say or else. Yeah. So, but thank you. Okay, let's uh, let's keep going. Yeah. How would that apply in Nigeria, for example, where the Muslims come and just wipe out entire villages? Um, you know, Muslims uh, come against sure. Christians. Christians don't do that to Muslims. Would Christians flee the area? Would they be? Would it be kosher for them to defend themselves? Or yeah, I they mean, know they're coming at them. Yeah, are they just going to stand there and let them? You know. Yeah, I mean, I I would I would be I would take the protective measure, and especially if you've got a, a family and you're trying to protect them. <laughs> Uh, to uh, to do the best you can to do that, but that might simply be if it's, you know, you also in a sense you count the cost. You you try to see can I actually 
protect myself from, say, a band of uh, Boko Haram uh, terrorists who are coming into our village. Well, maybe moving to the southern region of Nigeria might be a better place where there's greater security and, and protection. So, so that would be uh, that would be something that I would urge one to consider. All right, um, just war. So here's, I, I appreciate this quotation from G.K. Chesterton, the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. Some people think, oh, how can you, uh, how can you engage in, say, even protecting, you know, how can you, you know, engage in fighting against someone, maybe even harming that person? Well, the, you know, the person, if he's an intruder, you know, there's a, an aggressor. You know, the point is not, oh, I, I hate you, for what you've done, but rather I'm trying to protect people who are in harm's way. That's an expression of loving one's neighbor. It's not as though you are saying, oh, I can't love my neighbor um, you know, in, in fighting against someone. You are actually showing love to neighbor when you're fighting against unjust aggression. And, uh, and even when, with a soldier who is attacking, say in a, in a just war setting where there is an invasion, say, and you're fighting against them, it's not as though this, is, this springs from hatred, but also in the attempt to keep someone from, uh, from bringing harm to others, you actually are since keep preventing that person from doing further damage to his own soul by taking innocent human lives. So there is that consideration as well. But let me just say a few things, just a few preliminaries here, that the, uh, the theory of uh, just war is not something that is just for Christians, this pertains to all human beings. There have been just war theories that are developed, say, in Confucianism, just as they have developed in the Western tradition. Uh, so it's not as though that just war is, a, is something that stands opposed to Scripture. It's actually endorsed uh, within the Scriptures, uh, say, even when Jacob, well, sorry, when Abram is, you know, in his... You know, his family, his, his, his encampment has been attacked, and there's, you know, Lot has been kidnapped, and, and you know, a lot of others have been kidnapped. So Abram goes and actually, you know, fights against these, these kings in the, you know, the, in, the, in, the, in the valley of, uh, you know, you know the, the, the Dead Sea uh, area, and fights against them and retrieves Lot and, and the possessions and so forth. So there is this, you see in Scripture, uh, these sorts of, uh, you know, just wars uh, that are certainly morally permissible. Um, uh, just war thinking, you know, just war thinking, is a reminder to us. It's a kind of a. It's it, it takes into takes into account the fact that not all evils can be avoided. That some things are so evil that they must be fought against physically. Um, just war theory, uh, again, I would argue, is normative for all people, whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, uh, living in uh, you know, the modern era, that there is this, uh, you know, that this is something that is for believers and unbelievers alike. It's not just it's, there's a code for the Christian and code for the non-Christian. <clears throat> uh, just war theory doesn't try to justify war, as we've seen. Uh, it tries to prevent aggression, uh, tries to protect people when there has been an aggressor. Uh, just War Theory assumes that private citizens don't have the right to use military force. Um, you know, again, that's, the part, that's on the part of the government, although I, I do think that uh, having a gun to protect oneself, maybe even just to brandish it when there is, say, a, a shooter on the loose, uh, can be a, a, a very good thing. Uh, so, so guns don't 
shoot themselves. Guns don't have intentions. Uh, guns, uh, you know, how is the gun being used uh, is, the, is the question. Uh, in terms of just war criteria, uh, keep in mind that there are three phases, as it were, when you think about war. What do you do before you go to war? What do you do during war? And what do you do after war? So there has to be a, a kind of a, a holistic, integrated plan rather than saying, we're going to go to war. Yes, but how, you know, you know, what is the justification for that? What do you do during war? And how do you conduct uh, affairs after war? So, so I'll just run through these uh, very, very quickly. First is just cause. Before you go to war, make sure that you have the causes just. And these first three are the weightier criteria uh, in a just war setting, that these are critical. Uh, so just cause, all unprovoked aggression is condemned, that the war for, you know, it's a war for self-defense and protection, um, or maybe intervening with a, a vulnerable nation uh, and helping to protect them when they can't protect themselves. Uh, so say having... Uh, the Ukrainians who've actually put up a, you know, they've done a stalwart job, but other nations trying to help uh, support them uh, with, uh, with materiel and, and so forth. Uh, so, so, but again, so helping another nation, uh, even though it's not your own, but there's been an unjust aggressor. Uh, just intent uh, to what is the goal of the just war? Well, ultimately it's to secure peace. Just war is not something that stirs up. It actually seeks to restore, seeks to bring uh, the other party into friendship, into reconciled relationship. Uh, so you do see, even in this just war scenario, there is a picture of re redemption, a picture of reconciliation that is here. So it's not as though this is opposed to what the gospel is. Uh, so, so there is this, uh, this picture of, uh, of you know, trying to bring peace when there has been war. Um, lawful declaration. Only a lawful government has the right to initiate war. So a group like Hamas is not authorized to, to, take this, uh, to, you know, to make this move, uh, to declare war, and of course does not have a just cause and, and uh, does not have just intent. It's going to wipe out its enemy. It's not going to try to bring peace uh, to them. In fact, when you, uh, as um, on a on a radio interview with Frank Turek, a noted apologist, and uh, this will be coming out, I think, sometime this week, um, the broadcast with Frank Turek's, um, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist podcast, but uh, he was talking about how if Hamas lays down its arms, then there can be peace. If Israel lays down its arms, there'll be no Israel. <laughs> That's how that uh, arrangement has, has typically worked. So, uh, so there is that, uh, but the lawful declaration is critical. Okay, last resort. This is not a kind of a, a, a necessary feature, but it is an important one. Have we exhausted all, you know, generally speaking, not, you know, keep, you know, a, a potentially infinite number of alternatives here, but generally speaking, have, have we given diplomatic opportunities a shot? Have we, have we tried to exhaust as best we can these diplomatic means to, to settle things before going uh, into war? So, uh, so again, it uh, doesn't mean that, there, that you continue to do this when the person shows no, when the other party shows no, uh, no willingness to say, you know, maybe this has been precipitous. Okay, you've you got a good point here. Let's, uh, let's negotiate. Um, so that's uh, before war. Uh, when 
what do you do during war? Well, the immunity of non-combatants. And as we'll see, terrorism doesn't make this distinction between combatants and non-combatants. Um, and also, you know, but, but again, in warfare, prisoners of war, uh, medical personnel, casualties, civilian non-participants, uh, you know, should be immune from attack. Doesn't mean that you can always avoid, you know, the death of innocent civilians. That is sometimes the, the fallout from war. And that these are just realities that are part of a, living in a fallen world. Uh, but we do the best we can, uh, make the wisest decisions that we can to keep them out of harm's way. Again, of course, terrorism, uh, like Hamas, doesn't make these sorts of distinctions. Uh, we'll, they will embed themselves in hospitals, they'll embed themselves in schools, and, uh, and will, in, you know, again, this will inflict casualties upon those who are non-combatants, and they're kind of just stuck there. And so, uh, so again, that's the mindset of the terrorist. Uh, also, limited objectives. Um, the goal is peace, not the destruction of the enemy's, say, economy, its infrastructure, its political institutions. Uh, so what is the goal? You want to, rest you want to restore uh, things to uh, bring about a fair peace. And you'll use limited or proportional means uh, to do so. Uh, it doesn't mean that you use everything, all of your firepower. It just may mean using drone strikes. Uh, it may mean uh, using various uh, limited, uh, you know, limited um, uh, methods to, to accomplish your end. What do you do after war? Well, first, you want to restore order. Uh, you want to uh, make sure that there is going to be national and international security, sometimes peacekeeping forces in that place. Think of World War II and Germany and how there was an attempt to bring order to Germany, uh, that there would be, you know, you know, the Allied forces having troops in place to keep order in Germany. Also, justice. Think of the Nuremberg trials, where there were, uh, where these you know, various leaders in the Nazi hierarchy were put on trial for their atrocities, for their, uh, for their, you know, for death camps and so forth, for leading, uh, you know, the, you know, the plans that that led to great destruction. Uh, so, so again, what justice should come to those who had been in the leadership? And then 10th, uh, conciliation. Uh, how can parties imagine and move together toward a shared future? And uh, that might include things like having checks and balances in that process, like having military bases in Germany in a post-World War II setting, uh, having, you know, having a certain accountability structures, uh, helping to rebuild the nation so that it will, ha it will follow uh, democratic policies rather than uh, having a dictator stepping in and ignoring the Constitution and so forth. So um, uh, wars have been appropriated to you know, you know, bring an end to chattel slavery in America, Nazism, fascism, Soviet communism, uh, that... Um, uh, anyway, let me just, uh, I'll just kind of leave that there. Uh, let me just say something about just war and terrorism very briefly. Uh, we've picked up hints of this. Uh, actually, my wife and I, we were in London uh, back in 2017 when there was this, the terrorist attack at the Westminster Bridge. And we were just about a mile away. We heard all these sirens going. And our daughter, who was, you know, she was on, she and her husband were on their honeymoon in Italy, but they had come to visit us. And they had just been at that bridge just hours before. And uh, so that uh, moment uh, is very much uh, part of our, uh, our memory, our association there. 
But um, uh, terrorism is asymmetric. Uh, so it doesn't fight as a nation state, but it's as a group, say within a nation, a rogue group that rises up against a nation state. Uh, it's also indiscriminate, as we said, no distinction between combatants, non-combatants, um, you know, no regard for human rights. Uh, there's no distinction between guilt and innocence within a population. And so uh, that is, uh, again, a huge human rights issue right there. Uh, and then it's destabilizing. Uh, terrorism threatens global and uh, national political order. Uh, it sabotages things that are part, you know, that, that contribute to human flourishing. Uh, it tries to just wreak destruction. Uh, all of those systems that often take so much time to build, here it is just destroying it for this, you know, just, to, uh, just to undermine uh, the stability of a nation. And of course, the goal is to really inflict terror, you know, to create a, a sense of terror uh, that nothing is safe, nothing is protected. Um, it's also unconventional. Like I said, they'll embed themselves, terrorists embed themselves within a civilian population, schools, houses of worship, uh, using nail bombs to maim, fire to burn, and so forth. And how do we respond to terrorism? Well, really in the same way that you would engage in just war. You, you know, a state should declare war when there is a terrorist attack that, you know, and this is what Israel is doing against Hamas. It is saying we are going after you. And that is appropriate, especially since Hamas's charter has within it the destruction of Israel. So this is, this is huge. And uh, again, protecting the innocent, uh, going after the aggressor. Uh, again, not, you know, again, some people will not be negotiated with. Uh, and it may just be a matter of finishing off the opponent uh, because that person doesn't want to come to the table and, uh, and, and, and work toward terms of peace. Uh, the word Hamas itself, in both in Hebrew and in, in Arabic, means violence. And so that is, uh, you know, you, you, you know, the, the label says it all. Uh, anyway, but, but there is a kind of a general, we could unpack some of these things, but you can kind of walk through them all and, and see how, uh, how they can apply. Uh, before we get on to the, uh, the scriptures and just war, let me see if there are any questions or uh, comments that you have at this stage. Yeah. Well, I think that um, in I, I think there need what Israel is trying to do uh, is to urge people, of course, to move. You know, dropping leaflets saying you must leave. Um, you know, this is going to be an all-out assault. Uh, we don't want civilians to be harmed. Our goal is to uh, to strike at terrorists who have inflicted this, who have a goal to uh, to destroy our nation. And you know, I, I think that. There is, you know, there is that important line that needs to be drawn there. But in terms of weeding out, rooting out the terrorist threat, they are determined. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, they have brought this upon themselves. And there is a lot of collateral damage in terms of buildings that are destroyed, uh, the you know, water being cut off and so forth. Those are just the effects that come when Hamas is in charge and their goal is to destroy Israel. 
So it's, it's not as though it's just a, a nation-state sort of a thing. Uh, there's an asymmetry here that we've talked about, and so you have to go after this group and, uh, and, and, uh, and treat them as a, a, severe, a serious threat to the well-being of Israel and, indeed, to the, the well-being of the, uh, of the, the population in, in Gaza itself. So that's, I got, you know, that's where I, I mean, I don't know if you had any specifics, Beyond that, but uh, but yeah, I would I would certainly press for trying to root out the terrorist threat. Yeah, isn't something like where Hamas isn't an invading force into Gaza? They are really a symptom of the way the population views uh, Israel, and, and a lot of the stuff you it'd be really hard to disassociate because a lot of times you look at <coughs> World War II and the things that Hitler did. He couldn't do it without the support of the people of Germany and near the war when it started being the bombing campaigns, they were going after the city and basically to, to break the will of the people. Like the bombing of Dresden? Dresden? The whole thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they did the same thing with the firebombing in Tokyo. When mm -hmm. you have the population making the, the terrorists possible because of the support and, you know, giving their children and raising them up with hate and stuff, it's almost hard to, it's like a cancer, it's metastasizing yeah. into, into the population. Right. Yeah. It, it doesn't mean, though, I mean, even though there might be, say, um, civilian support for certain things, uh, it doesn't mean that all are actually engaged oh, in, no. in the fight. Well, and so not a, it's not like, oh, it's, it's just this one little uh, enclave here. Sure. Uh, oh, yeah. Then, I agree. You know, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. You, you just you, work around it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you do have, say, a sentiment of... You know, I mean, just the anti-Semitism, for example, the, the that you see, that you yeah. see uh, in, in Gaza and stuff, where yeah, they yeah. are 100% behind what Hamas is. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, but I, but uh, but again, you don't go after people who you know say I don't like you. Uh, you go against the people who are wielding the guns. So, all right, got a few more, too many hands. Uh, okay, we'll start here and then work our way back, and then we'll have to r really resume quickly. Okay, yeah. Uh, our founding fathers were opposed to being involved in foreign wars for a time, but we've been involved in many, many foreign wars. Uh, and we now have a military presence in some 89 countries, which means right across the board we have 89 enemies. Do you have anything to say about uh, neutrality as a policy? Well, I think neutrality <clears throat> uh, can, you know, can have its place. I think making sure that nations, you know, are not the threat perhaps that they used to be. And so you can pull back and, uh, you know, like for example, um, you know, maybe taking certain, entrusting certain responsibilities to the, to the nation where you had been. Uh, and so for example, with our precipitous withdrawal from Afghanistan, keeping say a military base there would have been really helpful, uh, keeping a kind of stability there that there could be a, a, you know, inroads in if need be. Uh, but not just pulling out altogether, and if, not to mention leaving all sorts of sophisticated weaponry behind. Um, so, so I think, yeah. So I, I, I think trying to uh, trying to you know keep away. Yeah, I think wisdom. I mean, you, you obviously can't be the world's police force, but I think you know as what Ronald Reagan talked about, peace through strength is is critical. Where you have a strong military, people take you seriously, they respect you. I mean, Muslims, you know, Muslim nations, you know, if, they, if you, they, don't, they don't see you as a potential threat, military threat, having lots of firepower and so forth, you know, they'll, they, they'll do all sorts of, uh, they can do all sorts of dastardly things. So, but they'll respect 
you know, force. They'll respect the, uh, the, the fact that you can use it if need be, that you're not afraid to do so. But, it's not, there's a, but you also, I think, want to show restraint there. So I think where you can pull out of conflicts, uh, entrust responsibilities to nations to preserve, kind of support them, rather than becoming involved in various uh, conflicts around the world, I, I think that, you know, that is wise. But I think to say no involvement in other nations, I mean... You know, I mean, World War II was a huge uh, involvement. Uh, you know, it, it, you know, you know, much was at stake, uh, and of course, we were attacked. But uh, but I think there is also room for stopping a, th a threat like Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan, um, even before Pearl Harbor had been uh, had been struck. So, anyway, that's. You see, Germany. We're still in Germany. We're still in Japan. We're still in South Korea. ジャーナリストの人たちが、ジャーナリストの人たちが、ジャーナリストの人たちが、ジャーナリストの人たちが、ジャーナリストの人たちが、ジャーナリストの人たちが、ジャーナリストの人たちが、ジャーナリストの人
sponsors terrorism and so forth, and you treat it as such. You say, okay, you may, you may be a, a nation, you may have people in power, you may have a certain system of government, but we're also going to, you know, that doesn't mean that you can, you know, just to declare uh, a war, like we're going we're gonna to destroy Israel, uh, you know, it doesn't make your cause just. So, okay, you may have a government, but you still got other considerations to follow in terms of the, is the intent just? Is the you know is you know is is the is the goal for uh, for peace or whatever? Has there been any aggression? You know, so so usually those nations that have risen up like Iran, I mean, its its goal is to actually disrupt and so forth. And so you treat it as a rogue nation. So 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 again, you you may have say the 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 the, the governmental kind of placeholder. Um, but the question is, well, what is it doing with its declarations? And, and, and a lot of times those are just simply unjust. So it's not as though you say, oh, that government can declare a just war too. Well, who's been attacking them, et cetera? Who's been, you know, what, what, is, what are the goals that this government has in the first place? You know, yeah, they're, they're trying to destroy other nations. They're, they're acting as aggressors. They're sending terrorists into the other parts of the world. So, so yes, you, you know, you can, you can talk about a government being in place, but what, what is that government actually doing? And that you, you treat it in, in a way, you, you follow those just war principles and saying, okay, this is, you know, your cause is not just and so forth. So can't get a lot of detail here. I'm gonna have to keep going here. We're out of time. Uh, okay, sermon on the mount, quickly. Um, what does scripture say about these things? You know, what about this eye, you know, notion of eye for an eye and tooth for tooth? Is Jesus rejecting the use of force? Jesus is rejecting the judicial use of the eye for an eye and tooth for tooth proportionality, but people applying it to their own personal relationships. I'm going to get you back. And the basis, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, Jesus is using it. He's referring to a misuse of the law of Moses rather than a proper judicial use of the law of Moses. So, uh, so Jesus is speaking about the, against that. What about not resisting an evildoer? Well, Jesus resisted evildoers, uh, you know, like the money changers and so forth. But, but Jesus is actually, the, the better translation here uh, of this is do not resist by evil means uh, or do not retaliate by evil means. That is what Jesus has in mind. Jesus, like I said, Jesus is resisting evil people. Um, but the, the point is never pay back evil for evil to anyone. So I'm going, to, I'm going to skip some of these things. Um, the evil person is one who is abusing power, is personally hostile. Uh, what about someone who strikes you on the right cheek? This is not an act of violence. This is actually an insult. Uh, you know, Job, you know, striking my cheek in scorn uh, is parallel to jeering at me. Uh, Psalm 35, smiters slandered me without ceasing. Uh, Lamentations 3, let him offer his cheek to one who would strike him and let him be filled with disgrace. There's the humiliation, the insult that's there. So it's not an act of violence to so turn the other cheek is saying, Jesus saying, be willing to take another insult. Um, so what about, let me just get to a couple of things here. Um, um, we talked about the use of personal force. Um, Jesus is pretty severe in the New Testament too. Jude 5 says, Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So Jesus is involved in judgments in the Old Testament. So it's not as though uh, he's, he's kind of, it's bad in the Old Testament, but that Jesus comes and makes everything good. Jesus is involved in, and in our best manuscripts say, Jesus destroyed those who did not believe. Uh, you know, in um, Revelation 2, Jesus says, I will strike dead Jezebel's followers. Very interesting. But um, and also you have the, the martyrs calling for God to avenge their blood that has been shed by those who dwell upon the earth. Again, there's that pa passage in Proverbs 24, rescuing those who are being led astray, uh, hold them back. 
this requires force. This requires exertion. Um, uh, in you know, here's another passage. Um, let me just mention a couple things. Time for war. Um, Proverbs 20, making war by wise guidance. These are just general principles that we could apply to just war. Jesus talks about a parable of a king counting the cost before going to war. Luke 24, here are two swords. We've already talked about that. In, um, uh, you know, soldiers are not told to, to give up on their soldiering, but they're told to, you know, you know they're told to, you know, not you know take you know, not to you know, take bribes or to be and to be content with their wages and so forth. Um, uh, Romans thirteen: uh, the government is to punish the guilty. Second First Timothy to preserve the peace. And here's a key text: Acts twenty three. Paul's life is under threat by a mob. He doesn't take matters into his own hands. He's no vigilante justice here, but he you know his nephew reports this. Paul says, "Tell this to the commanding officer." And what ends up happening, Paul ends up getting a military escort of 470 soldiers out of Jerusalem, out of harm's way, to Caesarea on the coast where there is safety. So what is it, what is going on here? Paul is basically not taking matters into his own hands. Romans chapter 12, don't take vengeance to your own hands, but leave room for the wrath of God. Romans 13 then says, you know, that, that the, the, the servant of the state is ordained by God to take vengeance. So those ter terms wrath and vengeance are being used to apply to the state. And so Paul is actually bringing them together here, not taking matters into his own hand, not taking vengeance, but leaving room for the wrath of God. And so it's the state here, when it's doing its job, is going to protect the innocent. That's what they did. And so if need be, coercive force could be used. Death could have been, uh, you, know, you, know, you know, death could have been, uh, you know, the result for some of those in the mob, but they weren't. Paul had the protection uh, you know, it's kind of the kind of the peace, you know, kind of you know, peace through strength uh, idea. So anyway, those are a few things that I could mention. I, um, if you're interested in, you know, I, I go on and on about some of these things. But um, those are a few things to keep in mind uh, in scriptures. You know, war can stop oppression, resist attack, can punish wrongdoers, uh, can aim at of even avoiding war. Uh, and also, we can, you know, the deliverance of the Red Sea, celebrating war avoidance. So you have all of these things in the scriptures. Anyway, we are uh, out of time. I think we need, uh, you need time to get to your next session. So thanks so much for Thank coming you. and appreciate your listening. Thanks for listening to this session from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. This material is copyrighted and may not be altered or sold. For information, please visit shepherds360.org.